I forgot to bless the children, so let's pray for them. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the gift and heritage of children, the children in our midst, uh, and the children who don't have the freedom to worship you uh, as you have led them to. And so, Lord, we pray uh, for these precious little ones, uh, that you would manifest yourself to them and that you would bless them richly, put a hedge of protection about them, and lead them, be their good shepherd. And then give us the gifts necessary to be the congregation you have called uh, to raise them up in the nurture and knowledge and name of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is actually the Sunday that we normally set aside every year to talk about stewardship. This is technically my stewardship sermon. And uh, we follow the lectionary, so we don't get to pick what scripture passages we're going to preach on. And so it's irony, providence, a cruel joke that our gospel lesson this morning would be Jesus telling a wealthy man, I don't want your money. It uh, doesn't really bode well for stewardship. Uh, and so, but we're going to take a look at it and see exactly what Jesus is saying to this man and what is going on in this man's life and answer the ultimate question What does Jesus want of us? What does Jesus want of us? What, what, is, what is his demand on our lives? Well, our friend this morning, we know elsewhere in the other Gospels that he's often referred to as the rich, young ruler. Uh, He is a man uh, of substance. He uh, is a man with wealth. Uh, He's a ruler, probably the local synagogue. So we know that he's a devout and religious man. He's a man with some authority. And here he is uh, making his way to Jesus. And he falls before Jesus, this man of prominence, who you don't often see falling on their knees before anybody. And he asks Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. Well, Jesus immediately knows what direction this conversation is going to take. And he says, why why do you call me good? For only God is good. He's already beginning to look upon the heart of this rich young man who doesn't know that the man standing before him is the God of the universe who looks beyond mere external actions and devotion and gazes upon the human heart. And so Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, if you can count, uh, you'll notice that Jesus has left off half of the commandments. And we don't know uh, whether Jesus just decided to stop there, or maybe it was the rich man who cut him off and said, yep, yep, I have kept from my youth. I have those covered. If you're worried about my devotion, worry no more. I mean, honestly, if let's do a little inventory here. By, by most standards, I've not killed anybody. I've not committed adultery. I've not stolen. Well, once when I was 12 from 7-Eleven, but nobody knows about that. Why start now? Do not bear false witness. I've not really done that. I've not defrauded anybody. And I've honored my mother and father. I've done very well for myself. I have them set up down in Boca. It's very nice. And I've honor them. Just ask them. Call them up. Well, I think it's 
very interesting that the commandments that Jesus talked about are actually commandments that are easier to keep externally. Right? They're things that are obvious in our lives if we're doing, you know, uh, killing, things like that, that, that would be obvious to the general public that maybe you've done something wrong. Uh, rather than the commandments that really deal with the heart, and of course these deal with the heart too. This man didn't understand, as the author of the Hebrews said, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. Outwardly, this man was the model picture of devotion and religiosity. He had it together. Now, he wasn't around when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount where he said, I tell you, you have heard it said, you shall do no murder. But I tell you that if you've hated your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've lusted after anybody in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. Outwardly, he can pull it off. But here's Jesus gazing upon his heart. And then Mark goes out of his way to say this. Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Well, I don't find that particularly loving. Uh, I find that fairly disheartening, as this young man did. Uh, So how is it that Jesus loved this man by pushing on a very significant bruise in this man's life? He went straight for the heart. His wealth, which hadn't been brought up at this point in the conversation, but everybody around him knew who this guy was, and Jesus being who he is, knew who this guy was. And saw what was really at the center of his life. You see, what this man was trying to do is he was trying to get in good with Jesus based on two things. His religiosity, his outward conformity to the law, while his inward man was not converted at all. And also his wealth. It is loving. When the Holy Spirit of God, and in this case Jesus himself, pushes on certain bruises in our lives. And in this case, what Jesus does is he, not go, not, he doesn't necessarily go just after sin. Because when we think about the things that Jesus saves us from in our lives, we normally think about negative things, bad things, these things like the commandments. But rare, very rarely do we think that Jesus also, his cross attacks what we perceive to be the best things that we bring to the table. Now, being wealthy, I can understand why it is. Being wealthy, I can understand why it's difficult to come to a place where you feel like you need Jesus. Now, the people who were following Jesus at the height of his ministry, the Bible says that they were sinners and tax collectors. And within that group were a disproportionate number of people who were poor, down and out, plagued with diseases like leprosy and 
the like, and they were people that you really wouldn't affiliate with or, or run with, generally speaking, and it's understandable why they were attracted to Jesus, why they heard his glorious message of the gospel and were drawn to him, because they didn't have anything. And at the end of the day, all they had literally was Jesus. But if you're doing well in life, if you're living comfortably, if you don't know want or need, you know, it's kind of hard to drive home the argument that you need Jesus. Well, I mean, yeah, I need him in those difficult times. But otherwise, you know, I, I really generally don't need him. Jesus says, you lack one thing. That would be great news for me to hear because I feel like Jesus would say, you lack a lot of things uh, to me. But to this man, he only lacked one thing. But unfortunately, that one thing was something, something that the rich young man held more closely, more tightly, and more dearly than anything else in this world. His wealth. His wealth had become an idol. You see, he came to the table thinking, Jesus, this is what I can offer you. And the very best he thought he had to offer, Jesus said, go give it away. And so he goes away sad. And whenever I read this passage, I often, in my heart of hearts, kind of hope that Jesus would say, no, wait a minute, come back. Come back. But off he goes. Why? To grapple with the bruise that Jesus has just pushed upon. His whole world has just become topsy-turvy where he's not exactly sure who he is anymore. And so off he goes. And he's not the only one that's alarmed the disciples. And I get it. I mean, if I were one of the disciples, I would think, now here's a guy who's got his act together, and he's got a lot of money, because this son of man has no place to lay his head stuff is for the birds. Like, my man can set us up. And we can stay in corporate suites every night, the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, and, and this guy has so much money, we could, we could franchise. You know, put a place in Bethany and Caesarea Philippi, and I mean, we might even reach for Damascus. I mean, this is our chance to really take off. But as he walks away, they're often left with the question, well, if this guy doesn't get in, then who does? Well, Jesus says to them and to us fairly clearly that if you desire fellowship with God, if you want to relate to God in a personal and intimate way, if you want to know His saving power and His grace, that when you come, then when you come to Him, you cannot come to Him in your own strength or based upon your own merit. Because if you do then there are going to be strings attached. Your commitment on your end is going to be conditional. I sort of chuckled in 2006 when Warren Buffett committed $30.7 billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And that commitment is currently being met by his giving of $1.5 billion a year to the foundation. 
And while he was being interviewed with the Gates family at the New York City Public Library, uh, he declared, quote, well, there's more than one way to get into heaven. Now, on the face of that, uh, I know doctrinally that's unsound, but then I began to think of how cruel believing in that would be. And I don't know about you, but my net worth doesn't really allow me to give uh, a billion and a half a year uh, away to charitable causes. And so if you're not Warren Buffett, if you can't afford the price tag that he's established, the standard which he's created, in order to gain your way into heaven through monetary gifts, where does that leave us? No, in fact, this scripture brings up a reality that we often forget about and that the Bible teaches that there are actually two ways to be saved. The first way, which we talk about a lot, is solely through the merits and mediation and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Through his shed blood upon the cross, his death on your behalf, and his being raised from the dead for you so that you now have victory over death, sin, and the grave. But there's another way. And that is, live a perfect life. Live a life without sin, externally and internally. And if you can do that, you're fine. Because if you can do that, if you're perfect, then you don't need Jesus. I've told you this story before, but I once asked a congregation that I was serving, I mean, how many of us in here are really perfect? And a man in the back of the church raised his hand. And it was a rhetorical question. I didn't really know what to do with it because some people saw him. And I just sort of under my breath said, well, we'll talk to your wife after the service. <laughs> well, we all, if we're self-aware enough, we, we are aware because of God's presence in our lives of the bruises that are being pressed upon in our life. We know all too well our sins and our offenses. And it turns out that Jesus doesn't want even the best we have to offer. There's a wonderful line in our communion service that says, God, we pray that you would not weigh our merits, but that you would pardon our offenses. God, don't look at even the good we might bring to the table. But forgive us. Forgive us. Look at us the way that you look upon your son Jesus. Cover us in his righteousness and look upon us in that way. Well, then what does Jesus want? He wants you. He wants you. What did this man lack? A full surrender of his heart to God and Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying to this rich young man is, give up your idol. Give up whatever it is that you think will ingratiate, yourself, will ingratiate God to you. Give up whatever you think is going to bring you wholeness and health in life. Give up the thing that you think is going to get you where you want to go in life. Because in the end, what this idol will do is you think it's helping you. But in fact, it's got a hold of you. And that's why Jesus' death attacks not only our sin, but also any merit that we think we might bring. Even things that might seem good. 
Now, I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful. And that is that, uh, you know, altar calls are not uh, very popular in the Episcopal Church. In fact, if we offered one, uh, some of you would just pass out um, and we would just assume you're Pentecostal. So uh, we, 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 we really, that's not part of our tradition. But in fact, every time we celebrate communion, we issue an altar call. We say, the table is set. This is what Jesus Christ has done for you. He has died and he's risen again. And he is alive. And so come forward. Come forward and simply receive by faith Jesus Christ. And what do you bring when you come forward? Nothing. You just come forward. And whether you are rich or poor, young or old... Whether you've got it together, whether you're a total wreck, whether your bruises really hurt, or whether you're still struggling with your bruises, we all take the same posture on our knees and hold open our open hands like beggars. And all we do is simply receive. We say yes to Jesus and surrender our hearts and lives to him. And when we do that, when we give ourselves totally over to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, then God begins to use you. He begins to use the gifts that he's given you, the resources that he's given you, so that men, women, and children can come to faith in him. But at the end of the day... Ultimately, he wants you. Amen.